Welcome to the Bitcoin Breakout, a production of the Survival Podcast. I'm your host, Jack Spierko. Remember, you can always find all our episodes at thebitcoinbreakout.com. You can also find all episodes of the Survival Podcast at tspc.co. If you want full personal sovereignty, Bitcoin is only one step. On the Survival Podcast, we discuss all aspects of self-sufficiency, self-reliance, independence, and personal liberty. Now strap in and get ready for another episode of the Bitcoin Breakout, where we discuss how Bitcoin and the Lightning Network will literally change everything. Fix the money, fix the world. And we are live. Welcome, everybody. Episode 7 of the Bitcoin Breakout. I think it's 3123 of the Survival Podcast. And uh, today's episode is going to be 10 of your questions about Bitcoin and the Lightning Network. And this came from, I, 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 and I'm not that active, well, I am active on Twitter now. I have not never been that active on Twitter, so I don't have a huge Twitter following. Um, and so I don't get a lot of traction on Twitter often, but I have determined that, like, it's where the best Bitcoin discussion is. So when I threw up a post and said, hey, give me some of your questions about Bitcoin, because I don't have a guest for this week. Uh, and we did that kind of uh, intentionally because we had two guests last week. I thought, you know, I'd get a dozen questions or so. I got stormed with questions. I guess maybe it's it's the interaction has more to do with the post itself and giving people something to respond to. But I got a ton of questions. No way I could do them all. And this will be in the bank for weeks when I don't have a guest for Bitcoin Breakout. And uh, we'll keep going through these and working on them over time. But I picked 10 that I thought would be really great for today's episode. So thanks for tuning in. I have a few updates for you guys about Bitcoin Breakout uh, and Effects the Survival Podcast uh, before we dig into that. But first, my disclaimer, for those of you watching this as a video, I will never, ever, never, ever, never contact you for any personal information or provide any private chat information in the comments of a video or the comments on anything online if you are not communicating me to me with my email which can be jack at the survival podcast.com or jack at the bitcoin breakout.com assume it's not me right i might answer you in a comment or something but when it comes to anything uh, on a personal level or a business level if it ain't through email just assume it's not me until you verified it's me through well email there you go because the scammers come in all the time um And that's part of why I'm going to give you uh, some of my updates today. One is, I don't know when I'm going to do this, but it will be soon. I am going to stop putting my live feeds for Bitcoin Breakout on the Survival Podcast YouTube channel. Uh, so it will still go out as a weekly episode of the podcast on the podcast feeds. But when it comes to YouTube... I will begin to exclusively do my live feeds on YouTube on the Bitcoin Breakout channel. There's a variety of reasons for that. One is that I have some listeners like, I really like the Bitcoin content, which is why I did the breakout. Um, but I had a couple people complain, I don't like seeing it in my news feeds on YouTube. And I almost feel like, go screw, but I also feel like, well, this is why you did it, Jack. And I think there's some other reasons. And one is that when it comes to the scams I just talked about, they come in heavily heavily whenever I do a show on Bitcoin because obviously they're looking for an influencer channel where they can get people that are interested in Bitcoin and say something like, I need help with my wallet. Can you help me? Or some shit like that. Or I'll mine Bitcoin for you or all types of things. Or I do a swap or any kind of thing like that. So by taking that content off the TSP channel, um, I think we will 
eliminate a lot of that for my broader audience. The other thing is the Bitcoin channel on YouTube will grow a hell of a lot faster. It's the only place to get the content because a bunch of you right now are sitting here. I see you commenting and you're on the TSP channel. And as soon as that changes, you'll be over there. So I'm going to probably do that next up. Um, I have some thoughts about some past episodes of survival podcast. I think I'm going to move over on to Bitcoin breakout as new Bitcoin breakout episodes. And all I mean by that is I'm going to change the bumper on the front and the back of the episode and just put it over there because we have some episodes from the survival podcast prior to the creation of Bitcoin breakout that are just too damn good to not be in the Bitcoin breakout catalog. Who am I thinking of? How about Brian Harrington? That was one of the best Bitcoin discussions I've ever had. Really active dude, working hard to build up uh, the Bitcoin community. And Adam Curry. I had Adam Curry on for over two and a half hours talking about Bitcoin, Lightning, Value for Value, the Podfather. So I'm going to take those episodes. I don't know exactly when. I'm going to be really busy this weekend. Um, Dorothy's getting her pup. Joel Riles from Fortress K9 is coming and delivering our new doggy. Uh, and I've, we made a barter deal with him. So we bartered for the dog and he's getting me for a weekend of consulting on his business. So, uh, this weekend's gone. And, and I do not mean I'm going to rewind them and put them back into the TSP feed. I'm just going to bring them over. This is where you can help me. I've been working so damn hard lately. I'm literally, even with my ability to recall information and basically I can watch a TV show that I've seen once five years ago and give you all the lines from every actor. I'm having some brain fog just because so much is going on. I know there's probably some episodes within the last year that would make fantastic Bitcoin breakout carryovers to bring into the catalog and build up that feed so that when I'm trying to get a Bitcoin-only guest, they're not only looking at Bitcoin breakout and we have seven episodes, and they see people like Guy Swan and Natalie Burnell and Adam Curry and stuff like that. That will make it easier for me to get maybe someday Michael Saylor on. I'm working on that, right? Um, so if you can think of an episode, that I should, in fact, bring over to Bitcoin Breakout's feed that I did in the past, before Bitcoin Breakout existed, let me know. Just email me, TSPC in the subject line, and tell me what episode you think I should bring over. All right, next up, if you are not using the Fountain app and you listen to the audio podcasts, mine or anybody's, I'm just going to say you hate money. Use the Fountain app. They're paying you to listen to the podcast you're listening to anyway on the device you're using to listen to the podcast anyway. It's like mining Satoshis. I'm not going to say it's like mining Bitcoin because, you know, you might make a thousand Satoshis in a day or something like that or 1500. It's not even a dollar right now anyway, but it's free Satoshis. It's free Satoshis. And I did hear somebody today uh, say that they thought that it was a little bit buggy, but they're willing to wait for the bugs to go away. I have to tell you, I don't think it's buggy anymore. I think that they have certain policy issues to protect creators that pay money to promote their content like me and themselves from people that are just basically mining Bitcoin just to mine Bitcoin by running bots and things like that. So when you first sign up, it takes a while and a certain amount of use before you can withdraw sats off the platform. Okay, that's fair, and that helps them like be sustainable with this. Another thing that I learned, and I'm like, so one day I'm listening, and I'm watching my sats roll in, and all of a sudden, and I was a Saturday, and I'm working, so I'm listening and working, listening and working, the sats stop coming in. None of the sats are coming anywhere. Well, they have a daily limit. Thank God. How sustainable would it be if they had no daily limit? Because there'd be people that would just let podcasts run 24 hours a day sitting on their countertop. So then a day later, it starts to roll in again. So I think it's a really, really cool thing. And uh, I just think you should be using it. 
And as you let's try to build some circular economy. And I'm not saying this just out of self-interest, like other podcasts, which you listen to as well. If you listen to a podcaster and after you listen to that podcast, you're like, I just got 600 sats listening to that podcaster. Consider boosting that podcaster with 100 sats. And start building the circular economy within Fountain. I think it is the future of podcasting. Somebody may do better, but right now it's the best experience for creators. It is the best experience for listeners. It's awesome. And it's all about using the Lightning Network. And there are some things I, you know, I'll give you an example. So you can make clips. I think it's one of the coolest things. After you make a clip, you can share the clip. And one of the ways you can share the clip is it literally generates a little video. You could download the video and upload it to places. Well, all of a sudden, like all the recent ones I did are not making videos. Maybe there's some kind of quota, right? Like maybe there's some kind of a quota on how many clips you can make and turn into videos or something. It's just not ready yet or whatever. Hey, Fountain, if you're listening, to tell you what, creators like me, I already bought your like $2, $3, whatever it is, monthly premium membership. Charge me 10 to give me hosting or allow me to export it and upload it so you're not storing the content long term or something like that, right? Or, you know, there's a lot of ways you can do this and save server space. So just that last up before we go to your questions. I know this is kind of a long intro, but if you live near Fort Worth, Texas, and you want to have some awesome cocktails tonight in a really cool environment, there is a Bitcoin meetup at a place called Thompson's Bookstore in Fort Worth. And it is called Fort Bitcoin is the meetup group. And it's on literally meetup.com. You can go there and look for Fort Bitcoin. I will be there. They seem like an awesome group of people. I only know these folks through Telegram right now. I think there's like 19 registered. and A lot of people bring a significant other. So it's probably going to be 30 people-ish or more hanging out, drinking badass Manhattans and old fashions and stuff like that. A speakeasy-like environment. It says bookstore, but it's not really a bookstore. It's a cool Kind of speakeasy theme bar, six to eight tonight in Fort Worth. Now, let's get into these questions. There were some of these questions I'm like, you know, they almost sound critical, but they're not. These are people that are beginning to move into this world, right? Beginning to move into this world. Um, and they're discovering what Bitcoin's all about. And as they go through that journey of discovery, it's right that they ask questions. And the more you can tell the question comes from a point of thinking, the more valuable the question is to me. And this first question is wonderful in that way. And the question was basically drilling it down to the nuts and bolts. Does subdividing Satoshis actually make Bitcoin into an inflationary currency? So when I had Brian Harrington on, or I think I talked about it with Brian and I talked about it with Guy Swan, we had mentioned, like, if let's say the price of Bitcoin goes to $10 million someday, God willing, and I believe someday it probably will, then a Satoshi's a dollar, a dollar's worth of value, okay? You can see where that could be a problem, can't you? What if I want to sell something for a dollar fifty? So we need more fractional units of Satoshis. And the more you get mainstream adoption, the higher you will drive the price of Bitcoin. Since it is a deflationary currency in reality, and it's, it's actually slightly inflationary all the way up to the last Bitcoin's mine, because there's a little more every year, but it's a fixed emission and a known rate of emission. And the more, every time, you know, 
people put Bitcoin in the long term, the amount of circulation declines. You can have what's called a monetary shortage. This has happened, and it's why we ended up with things like bimetallic currency standards. So there was a time, for instance, when a lot of nations here and there that came and went, so it's not one place, but uh, what was used for money was gold. Gold was money. And then in time, you ended up with a problem, even though the gold was a great hard form of money, especially for the technology of the time, What happens when a couple or three or four or even a hundred entities within an empire are hoarding the gold and there's not enough gold in circulation for commerce to occur? So what happens? We end up with a bimetallic economy and we end up with silver. So we have a gold and silver economy to compensate for that. And then what happens? Well, the silver starts to get hoarded. So then the, 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 you know, there's places where we've had trimetallic economies. You know, silver and gold and bronze or silver and gold and copper because the copper has some value as a metal that can be used to fabricate things and stuff like that. Nowhere near. So then it becomes the, the least valuable in the chain. And the problem with that is it, that still is an inflationary economy because I can make a whole bunch of copper cents that add up to a whole bunch of dollars if we were in a dollar based trimetallic economy, which No one ever called it that, but if you go back prior to, um, back into the 1800s anyway, there was a time when we had solid copper pennies, we had uh, silver, 90% silver or, or higher coinage, and we had gold-minted coins, and then we had a trimetallic economy. Well, you, you're not going to do that with a Bitcoin. That would be like saying, well, we have to have Bitcoin, And then so we need a silver to match Bitcoin's gold. We need a Litecoin. And now we start to inflate the currency. So the answer to this question, short, is no. Fractionalizing doesn't mean inflation. Because if I have a pound of gold, and that's like we have a small economy. We all live on an island together. We just have this one pound of gold is the most limited resource we have. And we will break it up into, you know, I don't know, grams. Somehow we get into fret to grams. And now we have that many grams. And then these grams of gold move around. And the island grows, the population grows, the economy grows. A couple guys put in some, you know, island really infrastructure and they end up being the wealthy, the winners. As long as they're not being predatory, that's not a problem. And it, it is natural that their wealth will accrue. If we then go ahead and break the grams into half grams, we still have the same amount of gold. And it really is that simple. So when somebody hears this question, if you jump there and you think it's a dumb question, you were right in jumping there, but it's not a dumb question. All of a sudden, there's more of these things moving around. And this is important to think about because there's anti-Bitcoin voices who have literally made the case. Bitcoin's not that scarce because there's a hundred gazillion, gazillion, bazillion Satoshis. No, but Bitcoin Locked in at that 21 million hard cap is always a 21 million hard cap. And just think of anything. If we even took like this stick was currency and we, we chopped it up into little pieces, we have a certain amount of wood. If we put it through a chipper shredder and it gets to smaller pieces, then we still have the same amount of wood. And if we turned it into sawdust, into individual little grains of sawdust, we still have the same amount of total thermal energy of wood left. That's how Bitcoin works. So it's a great question, but the answer is no, it doesn't do it. 
Uh, next was what is Bitcoin maximalism versus toxic maximalism? And what would I call myself? And I'll add into this one a separate question. Uh, we'll just hit it here. What made me stop pushing any altcoins? All right. So first of all, I look at maximalism is, is what it is. It's kind of like when you say, are you an anarchist that's a, a anarcho communist or are you an anarchist that is a, uh, anarcho capitalist or whatever? So you, so first you're an anarchist. An anarchist is a person that does not believe in the authority of the state and believe that all actions between all individuals should be voluntarily voluntary. If you add in your hyphenated, I'm an ancom, I'm an anarcho-capitalist, whatever, and you mean your individual personal philosophy and people that choose to work with you follow that philosophy, you're good. If you mean this is the flavor of anarchy we shall have and everybody else will comply with it, When we were in charge as the anarchy rulers of the world, you are now a super state and you're full of shit, right? So maximalist is where I'll start with the definition. And a maximalist is an individual who believes in taking the necessary steps for the immediate implementation of an idea or a concept, right? So if you believe that Bitcoin is the great base money of all time for right now and you take steps and actions to ensure its adoption, You are by the definition of maximalism, a Bitcoin maximalist. So what's a toxic maximalist? Depends on who you ask. So to me, a toxic maximalist is somebody who's just an asshole for the sake of being an asshole and doesn't give a shit about anybody else except their opinion. They can't possibly ever be wrong. And when somebody points out something or asks a question, so if I was a toxic maximalist and you asked me, does subdividing Satoshis make Bitcoin inflationary? I'd say, no, no, you stupid fool. You moron, have fun being poor, or something like that. To me, that's what a toxic maximalist is. However, there's a lot of people out there that are shilling their particular altcoin, and when they come and say, well, Litecoin has a place, or this has a place, or Ethereum has a place because it's technology and blockchain versus Bitcoin, and, and that person says, no, this is not money. It might be an interesting technology, but it's not money, and nobody should put their money in it as an investment. Well, now you're toxic because you disagreed with them. So it it is all dependent on the person that is applying the label, right? Uh, I would call myself a Bitcoin maximalist who is not completely closed to the idea of some other technologies may be useful. How did I get here? I've kind of almost always been this way. If you've listened to me for a long period of time, you know that even going back five years, I would always say, You know, this thing is interesting because it works this way and it might be useful for uh, a public blockchain that is secured through uh, this alternative means. But it is for something like keeping public records that are supposed to be public, but yet keeping them secure. And then I would say, but in the end, Bitcoin may eat everything. Or th this is really interesting because it pri provides privacy, but in the end, Bitcoin will probably eat everything. So I've always believed, and I've always said, if your money is in anything but Bitcoin, it's on the table at Vegas. And if you wouldn't take it to Vegas and put it on a, on a roulette wheel and say, I'm betting on, uh, you know, I'm betting on black, that's a pretty low risk proposition. It's a little less than 50-50 because the green zeros get you, right? But it's about a 50-50%. You know, that's like picking a solid project that has solid activity, that has a reasonable use case, but it's still gambling. But if you're stacking sats, if you're buying Bitcoin and holding it with the concept of I'm holding forever, 
that you will only see the number go up over time. That math tells us this, and that's only become more true over time. And that's the other thing that happened and changed my opinion. The longer Bitcoin's been here, the more attacks it survived. And the most recent liquidation of leveraged money in these stupid-ass yield farms that so many of you begged me, Jack, Jack, talk about yield farms. And I'm like, I'm still researching them. I don't feel any that I'm comfortable putting my money into. And therefore, if I wouldn't put my money into it, I'm not going to talk about it because you'll hear me talk about it and be like, oh, Jack said this one works. And none of it made sense to me. None of it made sense to me that you could get these types of yields on Bitcoin when all they were doing is borrowing Bitcoin to leverage Bitcoin against other crypto shit coins. Like it all seemed bad. It all seemed bad. It all seemed like things that, things that shouldn't be done. <laughs> And so I was never comfortable doing it. So since I was never comfortable doing it, I never suggested that you do it. And I think that the beauty of these liquidations and it hurting Bitcoin in price, but not in function. Okay. Is that people learn. This is what a monetary system without bailouts and the artificial means of manipulation looks like. And I've, what else have I always said, guys, life is a teacher, but some people are slow learners and you learn far more quickly through pain than pleasure. I've been a teacher and a trainer one way or another my whole life. Uh, I, you know, I had to train soldiers that were in my squad in the United States Army. I had to train salespeople as a sales manager. I had to train staff as a company owner. Uh, going into permaculture, I've developed myself into a teacher there. Podcasting, if you do it right, I think you're teaching every day. And as a trainer, I prefer, as a teacher, I prefer to use pleasure to teach, to reinforce a student's behavior. But I know that nothing teaches you. Nothing teaches you. As well as pain. Pain, we remember. If you were ever the kid to put your hand on the hot stove burner, you never did it again. You never did it again. Right? You just like, I, I know what that's like. How many of you here, I know a lot of you guys are homesteaders, have at any point in time while you were working on your homestead, somebody else's homestead, a farm or something, accidentally put your arm next to a hot, hot fence. And I don't mean a little one. I mean something with some thump to it that when it hit you, not only did it hurt there, but you felt it through your whole body. How careful are you around them now? And that's what just happened. All these people that thought they couldn't lose their money, you know, that thought it was safe, that thought it was guaranteed that did, they got liquidated, they're not going to do it again. And they're going to be called toxic maximalists when they tell the next generation of plebs not to. And Chartreuse is saying in uh, on, from Twitch that some dude said on MeWe he bought $50 worth of Dogecoin because you said so. Um There's times, there's times when a person misunderstands and there's times when a person is a fucking liar and whoever that person is, is a fucking liar. And I dare that person 
to come here on one of my live streams. Tell me he's here and I'll give him an invite link and bring his fucking ass on here and tell me to my face that I ever told anybody to buy Dogecoin. That is the stupidest fucking thing I've ever heard of my life. And I'd like to know who this asshole is. No, he didn't misunderstand, Chartreuse. He didn't misunderstand. I defy anybody to find any audio of me ever saying anything that we construed is that you're supposed to buy Dogecoin. I've always said that is the biggest pile of shit ever. I've had people pay me in it, and I've even told those people, because some of them are people that have a bunch of it. And um, I've told them just as a service. I will take it. I want you to know it's going to my exchange account. It's immediately going into Bitcoin, and I really don't think, you know, you should. Oh, he said crypto. He finally said crypto. Yeah. Yeah, I never tell anybody buy crypto. Even when I was willing to say, hey, this is interesting, right? And I'm going to talk a little bit about privacy and how that still plays into this some. Well, I'm not willing to write everything off just yet in the future. But I always said specific technologies for specific reasons. And I'll, I'll, one more before I go forward. Well, I need to apologize, too. Hold on a second. There would be a way this could have happened. So I did once in a Telegram group as a game, when when the Wall Street idiots were pumping Doge, show how you could flip a currency in a matter of hours. And I did that with Doge. I never told anybody to buy it, though. So I'm just showing, like, this is like when you know somebody's doing something, if you have a little play money, you can do it. So I, I will apologize live. If that is what he meant, but I never told anybody to buy Doge ever. Anyway, um, yeah. So another thing that got me to become a full-on maximalist with Bitcoin is when I would find a tech that seemed like it made sense, you guys would bring me like five others. They're just like it. And I would be like, no, they're not. And then I'd look at them and go, there they are just like it. And, and what really, I think the two things that fuels altcoins, one is the, the ability to print money is the one ring to rule them all. It is too strong of a power for somebody to resist. So I'm starting a tech company. I want to be in, in, in the crypto space, and I could implement Bitcoin into my project, or I could create diddly-do shitcoin, and even if it's really cheap, as long as I can get it on a couple exchanges, I can take my piece that I reserve for myself and fund my operation. That's very hard to resist. And God bless the people that, that have done so, because you've done a lot of good by resisting it. But it's, it, it's, it's hard to resist. But the other thing is lack of patience. There's so many things we can do with, with Bitcoin now, with Lightning, like Fountain App, for instance, with Kurt, Adam Curry's Value for Value, Podcast Index, all that stuff working together. Dude, I don't know another crypto that can do that shit, right? But five years ago it would have been easier to create a tipping system based on something else because of fees and what have you. So it is, uh, it, it, it was, it was seeing all that come out and realizing that some of the stuff that we want to be able to do, the people in the alt space, they talk about it. They say they're building for it, but they're not actually doing it. They're talking about doing it and selling the idea. And then realizing that if you gave it time, It wouldn't be those people that would actually build the technologies that would enable value-for-value value exchange. And I mean that beyond the podcasting stuff. I mean true value-for-value value exchange, circular economies, like may happen with federated mini-mints and things like that, with blind federation and blind 
blind issuance and, and what have you, like being truly a regional, local, private banking with full privacy, which we'll get to in a bit. Like, I, to me, that's what's all going to happen for Bitcoin because it's where the real value lies. And that's going back to that question will pull me in there. All right, let's keep going. Um, some say Bitcoin is an inflation head. Some say it isn't. What is the reality to this? So if you've ever listened to me speak, and for some reason I'm all blurry right now, <laughs> and uh, see so we get the camera to focus. Anyway, if you ever listen to me speak about permaculture, I get tons of questions. You know, can you do this? Should you do that? Do wicking beds make sense in this situation? Should I get cattle? Should I get sheep? Should I get turkeys? You know, what what should I do? And what do I always start out with guys that have been listening to me for all these years? What? It depends. It depends. And often it, it, it doesn't really depend on so much what's going on in the ground, but it depends on what you mean by what you're asking or what you're willing to do with the results that you're going to obtain. So is inflation and is Bitcoin an inflation hedge? What's your time preference? I say if you're taking money that you know you're going to save for four or more years, and especially if you're doing it by investing over time. So I'm taking my surplus capital weekly. This is money that I'm not putting into my conventional retirement account. I don't have it in my 90-day emergency fund in case I lose my job. I'm not paying my bills with it this week or this month. This is money that I don't have another place to put that otherwise would be sitting as dollars. And I'm going to sweep that capital automatically once a week, once a month, whatever, into Bitcoin. Then it's an excellent inflation hedge because history has shown so. If you mean there's going to be 8% inflation this year and all this economic tor turmoil, so I'm going to take all my cash, my emergency fund and all that shit, I'm going to put it into Bitcoin. And I'm going to hold it this year to hedge against inflation this year. And I'm going to rely on it during the year like I would normally rely on cash. Then it's not. Huh. If you live in the United States of America. If you live in Turkey, even in that instance, it's an inflation hedge. So it depends. And I think we have a lot of really smart people in the Bitcoin space. And that's why I love this, this question who are saying Bitcoin is not an inflation hedge. And then five minutes later, talking about the long-term time value of Bitcoin and the preservation of value. And it's like, you know, is that what it is, guys? They're saying it's focusing on the microphone. I don't think it is. I don't think it is. Anyway, um, yeah, I, I think that's that, that's kind of a like confusion the person's having with themselves, right? They're having like this internal confused dialogue and so that's where I think we are with that I got distracted by comments in the audience sorry there uh, but I think it is an inflation heads if your time horizon is right and you're employing it in the right mechanism so that would be like saying well is gold an inflation hedge and then picking cherry picking a period of two years where gold performed poorly and say see gold's not an inflation hedge gold's an inflation hedge I've never shit on gold in my life. I've said that Bitcoin is better than gold. And then people take that as you're shitting on gold. I even one guy, I'm going to tell your sponsor you're shitting on silver and gold because JM Bullion is one of my sponsors, right? And I'm like, go ahead, because they sell gold and silver for freaking Bitcoin. 
they take it as payment for Bitcoin. Right? See, saying something like, I think that a, a Ferrari is a better car than a Dodge Challenger, which I own, is not shitting on my own car. It's acknowledging the reality. It's, it's, it's just a better vehicle. Uh, next up. Can the Lightning Network survive long enough to gain mass adoption? I, I, I look at that and go, I, I don't know that we have the question right. And the next question I think is the right question, but my answer is absolutely yes. Of course it can. It doesn't cost a lot of money to participate in the Lightning Network as a node operator. It's not a real hard thing to do. It's not like trying to be a miner or something like that, right? And so there's really no problem with having more nodes participate. What is complicated at times is balancing your nodes so that it's a productive member of the ecosystem. And what I've determined is the average person is not going to run a node. And I don't mean just the average individual. I don't mean your Aunt Edna. The average person who is a Bitcoin enthusiast that uses Lightning and doesn't use it like on Cash App or Strike where they don't even realize what it is or how it works, even that person is probably not going to run a node. But anybody that wants to learn can. I've learned a lot working with Tom last week. Uh, I got one more thing I got to do to really get everything working. But what you find is you can send all the money you want running your node, right? It's the liquidity to be able to receive inbound that you're lacking on the channel on the other side of it. And there's ways if you have a lot of traffic, you can basically just push your, tra- your, your, your liquidity back around the other side. But it is something that requires maintenance and you have to pay attention to it. And the average person's not really going to benefit much from it. But doesn't that sound like something else in Bitcoin? Mining? How many people love Bitcoin, love the idea of mining, but don't participate in mining because it's expensive to get into, because it makes a lot of noise, because it generates a lot of heat, because it uses a lot of power, for what, and it requires technical knowledge. Running a lightning node is way easier than mining. It really is. It's way easier than mining. So what that means is as the value of the lightning network increases, more people will do the work to gain the knowledge and the skills to run lightning nodes. And if you want to run a lightning node right now, you go to voltage.cloud and you can turn up a node for $12 a month. A pretty damn good node. That's what I'm playing with more than anything else right now is a voltage cloud node. And so we will, so the, cause the next question is how do we get lightning to have enough nodes and liquidity for it to, to scale to do what we want it to do? So I want you to think about this. We talked about how this Bitcoin yield mining shit is garbage. But if you were sitting on, let's say, uh, 20 Bitcoin, And there was a service with a good track record of trust, especially if you could participate in it without giving all your, your, your information over to the federal government. Might you say, you know what? I'm going to lock up 5% of my Bitcoin, one Bitcoin as liquidity on this node. And the more, the more this works for me, the more I might consider doing it. 
And so that I can take something like Bitcoin that's a great store of value, but it's really not great at building more Bitcoin, right? It's not something that I generally can get a yield on. What Lightning is going to enable are real yields. And I think when people look at Lightning and go, well, it's free transactions, stop saying that. It's not going to stay free. It doesn't have to stay free. If it's a quarter point, and that's kind of average, really, is like a quarter of a point or a half a point. Even like the strikes of the world that say they're not charged, there's money being made on transactions on the back end. Basically, they're charging for access to their node and giving their people a free ride. That, that's how that's working out. That's where that money comes from. So there's money in participating in the Lightning Network, either as a node operator, by basically renting liquidity or, and providing liquidity, or there's going to be money in the Lightning Network by tying up some of your Bitcoin in the network and being able to earn a yield. So if it's a quarter point, you're like, well, that's a quarter of a percent. I'm not risking my shit for a quarter point. But it's not a quarter point. That equity can enable probably half its, its, its value in transactions per day on a properly balanced node. So what will cause the Lightning Network to scale will be incentive to participate, which is the same thing that caused mining to scale. Because I think if you were to go back in time and you go back to, let's say, 2012, and you told somebody what the hash power on the Bitcoin mining network would be today, and you told them that the oil companies, right, and I think the only person that saw this coming was Hal Finley, by the way. Dude's a legend, right? Um, if you told them that oil companies would be mining Bitcoin while they're extracting oil, they would have told you you were high as a kite, that you were smoking crack, that there's something wrong with you, right? Um, and look at it today. If you said there will be a nation that will talk about building a city near a volcano to use geothermal energy to create Bitcoin City, they would have said, what kind of crack are you, like, do you have some Hunter Biden crack or what? Where'd you get that shit, man? And look at it today. And the reason is simple. It's not ideology. It's incentive. People put their money in places where they're rewarded for putting it. What will be, and what people will say right now, well, you could lose your Bitcoin. I completely agree. If somebody said right now, I, if you lock up your liquidity in my mining pool, right? But there may be ways to do this a little bit differently. There may be ways for you to operate your node and you provide the balance of liquidity. We already have this to a degree. And then you get a yield on that. There's a guarantee based on your liquidity being available, but they never actually have the ability to like close a channel and take your Bitcoin and take it offline. And right now I've just said, I don't think the average person is going to run a note. Time preference this year, next year, maybe the year after. There is no reason that all this, like when I do this, I'm like, I completely understand what is going on. It's the how that I'm worried I'm going to push the wrong button, do the wrong thing, mess something up, lose my Bitcoin. It's technology. It's technology. And compare it to a blog. So way back, way, way back, in the early days of what we think of as the Internet today, the modern Internet, when people ran blogs, you had to build a blog. 
And I don't mean you went to WordPress and downloaded and uploaded it to your own server or got your name dot WordPress or your name dot blogspot or whatever. Like the first blogs, you had to code a blog for yourself. The first blogs weren't even real blogs. They were just a a web page that you made articles for and you had permalinks that you, it was like a blog, but it wasn't. It didn't have a feed or anything. And then feeds came and all this stuff. But today, if you want to start a blog, it's pedestrian. It's easy. Anybody can do it. Now, when I say anybody, does that mean that your, your, your grandma Clara, who's 93 year old, can? She could, but she probably won't do the work to figure out how to do it. But anybody that spent a day could spin up a WordPress blog now and learn how to install extensions and make it do all kinds of, or uh, plugins and make it do all kinds of shit. It's been, it's been made readily accessible to the average person. Lightning, liquid, all these things over time will be made accessible through innovations and technologies. And that's how, that's why like, when people say we don't have enough, you know, nodes and all for lightning to scale, right? I don't even care. The more traffic there is to move value across lightning, and that doesn't just include Bitcoin, that includes things like strike and cash at moving dollars. The more capital will flow in in the form of Bitcoin to support the network because there's a financial incentive to do it. And, and I think you'll literally see people who have liquidity in Bitcoin on the network and earn their income in dollars through swaps as it comes off in your fees to pay their bills in fiat as long as fiat's still around. And the Lightning Network may be the death of fiat through the transmission of fiat. In other words, we'll move your shitcoin dollars for you while they fail. Because... There's another thing. I, I mentioned the word patience earlier with the development of technology. In supplanting an economic system, Bitcoiners need patience. The, the long-term vision, yes, is Bitcoin is the global monetary standard. Economic standards take an incredibly long time to shift. You ever hear somebody talk to you about you know, the fall of Rome and the parallels to the United States? Here's an inter- I'm not going to tell you the answer here. Here's an interesting little tidbit of history for you to know today. Go look. At the height of the Roman Empire, the beginning of the obvious fall, including the split into two empires, and the point at which we could really say there was no more Roman Empire, and how long the beginning of the fall till the end of the fall actually was. Now, I think things get accelerated in a modern world, but not that much. Fiat will be with us for a long time, and that's why you need to look at things like... um, What's it called? The bolt card? Is it the bolt card? Or I'm using the wrong term there. Fold. Yeah, fold. You need to look at a fold. Spend your fiat that you're going to spend anyway and get free Bitcoin. It's not a credit card either, guys. It's a debit card that you load up and you pay your bills with it and you get sats back. Like, so you're going to have people using services like that that are running nodes with liquidity that they're applying, earning money in dollars that they have to have dollars to pay their bills with, paying their bills with dollars and stacking sats in their cold storage. Like, this is the, the monetary game going forward. Uh, next up today, um, how will payment disputes be handled on Bitcoin, Lightning, or with Bitcoin, or anything like that? This is a question I had myself, and I realized it's a question that shows a lack of understanding. Like, I didn't understand really what I was asking. So, right now, um, let's say I go to a local store that's run by, built by Ross, who's making a technology point here about spell check and and how, yeah, technology evolves so everybody can use it. 
And but let's say built by Ross builds Rosses, whatever that means. And I'm like, I want to buy a Ross. And he says, okay, built by Ross Ross coming up. He puts one up on the table, and I say, pretty nice Ross there, Ross. Uh, how much does that cost? And he says, $17. And I pull out a 10, a 5, and two ones. There's no change involved, and I give him $17. What does Ross give me? If he's running a typical business, at least if I want one, he gives me a receipt. The receipt is proof of the transaction. So... We could have a transaction purely in Bitcoin across the Lightning Network. It could be in dollars, i.e. strike, dollars turn into Lightning, move across the other side, turn back into dollars. It could be across two Lightning nodes, independently run, whatever. We can still have a receipt in that transaction. I mean, Breeze has built a point-of-sale app into their app, so merchants can use their app as a point-of-sale device. So we can issue a receipt. We'll have a return policy. I have a return policy. What if it has to go to the courts? Well, if it went to the courts, Master and Visa weren't fixing the problem anyway. Did the transaction occur? So I think we ha- we already have a mechanism for this. Stores have return policies. Merchants have return policies. And I actually think there's two good things to come from this. One, it costs me over, I'd say about $2,500 a year on average due to chargeback fees because assholes who join my membership program, instead of saying, hey, man, I thought I canceled and I didn't, or, hey, I got charged again, can you fix this, report me to their merchant, uh, report me to their bank and say this guy made a charge against me unauthorized. And I can push back through Stripe or PayPal or whatever. and try. But a lot of times, even though I'm like, I will refund this guy, He never canceled. You know, like, send proof you shipped it. I can't send proof I shipped it. It's a mer- So I end up with this problem all the time. And there's times where I win, right? And then there's fraud cases, right, where, you know, I don't mean that I'm involved, but let's say somebody gets a hold of my wife's credit card, and then we – so there are the, – the merchant – I'm sorry, the merchant account provider, Visa, MasterCard, et cetera, they assume risk in this. That's part of why their fees are 3%. So – Fees are high because Visa assumes a risk and provides you an insurance, right? Well, do you think you need that insurance? What if you got to buy the insurance if you wanted it and you paid for it if you wanted it and you didn't? There's probably a technology to be developed there. But why is there a risk? Well, the risk is if I get your credit card number, I can figure out how to charge against it. If I get your Bitcoin address or your Lightning invoice, I I can't. I got to get a lot more information to raid your wallet. We already have that problem. So there's not going to be a database of customer account information that can be hacked because most credit cards, they're not stolen because somebody gets your credit card information. It's because somebody hacks in to some major centralized database and gets a shitload of it at one time. So that risk goes away. But it also says, okay, you paid Jack money and you want your money back. Talk to Jack. Talk to Jack, and then markets market, and scammers don't get more money over time. And we are going to have a lot, I think we're going to have reputation systems. I think we're going to be able to have a lot of privacy in these two about the backside of the transaction. But I think it's going to be possible to tie in certain interfaces that will say, Jack Spierko has received not even a number a lot of payments and has a lot of satisfied customers and our formula rates him a five star. 
Like you're safe doing business with him. If you don't like what he sold you, he's going to give you your money back within his own policy. Because that's how you judge a merchant. You don't judge a merchant and, well, I spent my money and I decided two and a half years later I didn't like him anymore because he's a poo-poo face and I want my money back. That's, that's not how it works. Every vendor should have a stated refund policy and then they should follow their own policy. And if you choose to ask for them to do something outside of that policy and they choose to do it for you, like, you know what, I'll do that for you. You're only one day over or whatever. Then they get to do that. But they haven't failed to meet their obligation to you as long as they follow the policy that they stated. So I think that, like, there's all kinds of ways to handle this without chargebacks. Because I think the chargeback thing is actually a problem masquerading as a solution because it justifies these banks stealing your money every time they push it around for you, right? Um, we'll talk about that, Hunters, at the end. Next up, how is the price of Bitcoin actually set globally? This is another one of those. If you know the answer, you're like, oh, that's not really a complicated question at all. But I want you to think about it from the viewpoint of a person that's just getting into this and says, Bitcoin's 19.9 today or whatever it is. I don't know. Let me, let me pull it up real quick here and see where is the Bitcoin price. Cause I don't, all these people are constantly refreshing or whatever. Uh, oh, don't bother me with your pop-ups. Uh, it is 19.8.76. Well, I was close to my 19.9. So, but, but just a few months ago, it was $30,000. And then uh, like a year ago, it was like 60. And then like several years ago, it was three. And I can sit. And I can, I can refresh and I can watch the price literally change by the minute. Who says so? This is what we call in any commodity price discovery. The market decides the price. It's based on how many people are willing to sell, how many people are willing to buy and what price they're willing to, to work out in between them. And this all on exchanges happens with a lot of automation. So if you go onto an exchange, it's more of a true trading exchange where you see bids and asks, you'll see that there's people they're offering X and there's people asking Y and somewhere those two worlds come together. And because we live in this amazing interconnected world today, these exchanges actually have the ability to put that information out in real time. This is our trading desk. This is what's happening right now. And if you don't watch one, it's kind of fascinating actually just to watch even if you don't fully understand what's going on to just watch orders come in and get filled or orders come in and get filled. And then those exchanges are amalgamated across the world, and it sets a general overall, I expect at this time to pay about this much. It's exactly how stocks work, except stocks might be confined to a specific market or something like that more, more so. And it is absolutely the case that Bitcoin may trade for a bit of a premium on exchange Y and a bit of a discount on exchange X, and there are people that arbitrage that. And as long as they can move fast enough, Between their book orders, they're able to skim every day. High-frequency trading, just like the stock market. It's not really that much different. In fact, in some ways, it's easier because it's less regulated. And a lot of these people doing leverage, that's what they're doing because even if you have that arbitrage play, the transactions have to clear. So if I borrow somebody else's Bitcoin, I can start playing bouncy ball back and forth in this arbitrage game, and I have liquidity in the arbitrage game. Yeah, don't go trying that. You're probably going to lose your ass. But there are... People with completely automated systems that do that right now. And it, it causes issues. I'll just say that. It causes issues, but they're not insurmountable. 
Because in the end, markets are going to market and people are going to pay what they're going to pay. And when more people say, I refuse to sell, and more people want to buy, the price goes up. And when more people say, I have to sell, or I need to sell, or I want to sell, and there's less buyers, price go down. That's basically it. And what happened in the most recent bloodletting, and it's not the whole, like there's a, you kind of had this really high top in the high 60s. And that coming down into the 30s and even high 20s, I think is a normal correction. It's burning fat in the cycle, right? It's the normal up and down of the market. This drop from the 30s down to the 20s and teens was largely precipitated by all this leverage. All these people were basically borrowing against their Bitcoin to execute other trades. When their other trades failed, and some was done at like an exchange level, and some was done at individual big-time baller, you know, trader, like all across the whole board, you're getting liquidated. And what that means is you've collateralized, let's say, a 1,000 Bitcoin. You're selling it. You're selling it to cover your obligation, and you don't have a choice. It's not, oh, I'm not willing to take this lesser amount. No, you're being forced in by the contract you entered into to liquidate that collateral against your debt. And so this massive amount of Bitcoin got dumped into the market, not because the people that held it wanted to sell, because they were forced to sell. And then there's retail stupid selling, okay? What's retail stupid selling? RSS, right? Retail stupid selling is when you talk to somebody and you're like, well, and they're like, I just had to sell all my Bitcoin. And you're like, why? You know, did you get cancer? Did your mom die? Did you lose your job? You I mean, it sucks if you had to sell at a bottom. That's terrible. I'm like, no, man, because it went down. Oh, wait. So the Bitcoin went down. Somebody came to your house, put a gun in your mouth, said you better sell your Bitcoin. No. Well, why'd you sell? So I don't lose everything. There's a lot of retail stupid selling that goes along with these events. And all of that will drive price down. Just like FOMO and like when I have my, my family members, when Elon Musk just mentions Bitcoin for the first time, how do I buy Bitcoin? I don't know, man. Why didn't you buy Bitcoin five years ago, two years ago, three years ago, one year ago, when I was saying I'll help you do it? Why do you want to FOMO? And that's happening everywhere. And this is the beauty of it. There is that new model that basically has a series of circles on the Bitcoin graph as it goes up. And what you notice is on each cycle, as Bitcoin goes continuously up over time, the circle, which shows basically the top and bottom of the cycle, gets smaller. That's reduced volatility across time. It's still very volatile for the person that paid $65,000 and invested their freaking college fund in it. But for the person that's aggregate averaged in, you're feeling like this feels like nothing to me this time. Like if you went through the 20, was it 2012, 2013? Maybe it was 2011, 2012, somewhere in there. That hurt. And if you went through the 2017 through 2019 cycle, that really hurt. And so now you become immune to these smaller fluctuations and, and what have you. Um, Next up, should you get a tax advantage account for Bitcoin or keep it all off the public record? So that's an individual investing decision, but I'll tell you how I think about it for myself. I have a tax advantage account where I do hold some Bitcoin, mainly because I wanted to understand how it works. And the idea that you can't self-custody and have a Bitcoin tax advantage account basically 
uh, an IRA is wrong. You absolutely can. You can even set up a self-custody IRA and do it, but then you got to make sure you file all the paperwork properly. There's a fee, and the fee's more to do it with self-custody, but every entity I know that does IRAs, like Choice, for instance, has a self-custody option. They just charge you a little more for it. And the way it works is you have a multi-signature custody of the Bitcoin. They cannot lock your Bitcoin. They cannot turn your Bitcoin over to the government. They cannot move your Bitcoin. They cannot spend your Bitcoin. And you never lose the ability to do so. You do, however, lose right the ability to do so without direct immediate consequence. Okay? So what I mean by that is if you put your... Bitcoin into an IRA, there might be taxes or penalties for withdrawal of some portion or all of it. And what they'll do is say, hey, Jack Spierko pulled money out of his IRA before his retirement age, not under the conditions that are acceptable under an IRA. That doesn't mean Jack's in trouble. It means when I file my taxes that year, I need to justify what I did, right? And I need to pay any money I owe. And it's basically filling out a form properly. The reason you use a company like Choice to do your IRA is there's a certain amount of reporting required, and it all has to be done correctly. And not only do they assume the responsibility, but they assume the consequence for it being done improperly. So if you cross your T wrong or something on your self-custody, it could result in a problem for you. If they do it, it results in a problem for them. But you should have your two keys. And what that is is a two-out-of-three system, meaning they have one key, If you lose one key, you still have the other key. You can go to them and say, here's my key and proof that I'm me. And they give you the key that they hold, and now you can move your money again. So there's a security aspect to it, right? But you have your two keys. You put your two keys in. You can sweep your money anywhere you want, do anything you want to. There's nothing they can do about it. Or you can basically use yours to request withdrawals at the proper time as a retired person. So there's no reason not to do this right now except for the fact that you're now publicly going on record with the amount of Bitcoin you hold. So I would do it with all of it. What I want to see, for a huge number of reasons, one, just because I do believe, as shitty as the state is, if it has its own rules, it should be consistent in its own rules. And there is no good reason that we have a futures ETF for Bitcoin and we don't have a spot ETF for Bitcoin. That doesn't make any sense. That is that is cherry-picking what you choose to approve without consistency. So I want a spot ETF. Once you have a spot ETF, this is how I'm going to answer this question. You should use ETFs in your 401ks and IRAs, and you should self-custody your Bitcoin outside of them. Just like I say with silver. you should have If you have silver and you have bars or coins, it should be in a safe somewhere where it's safe from intruders, theft, and fire. And it should be your own business, and you shouldn't tell anybody where it is except for some estate planning purposes, right? And then you, if you want to hold silver in your IRA, you should hold SLV, which is the ETF for silver. So that's how I see it being long-term. And there are people that say, why, why would you ever even buy a Bitcoin ETF? Because the guy you're talking to, like you know something, and you don't, is sitting on a 401k or an IRA with $1.4 million in it, and he can't get exposure to Bitcoin. That's why. That's why. And he doesn't want to take the hit for withdrawal. That's why. And I can say more about that. Someday we're going to do a whole episode on this subject, because it's interesting indeed. But that's all we're going to do on it today.
And then I've had another question. This also seems accusational, but I think it's just the person being thoughtful. Is the Lightning Network actually just centralization of Bitcoin or fractional reserve for Bitcoin? Well, I really suggest that you go back, if you have that question, and listen to the first episode of Bitcoin Breakout, where we talk about money in the fiat system, or maybe read or listen to Safe Dean's um, Fiat Standard. Because if you understand the fiat system, and then you understand, and I don't mean think it's a bad thing and, you know, some buzzwords. You actually understand what's, why it's centralized, and you actually understand what fractional reserve is. And then if you understand the Lightning Network, you don't have the question anymore. Because it's like asking, is a sheep a dog? Other than the fact that they both have four legs and hair and are mammals, they're not similar at all. So let's talk about centralization in the Lightning Network. The Lightning Network is not centralization. Anybody can set up a box about this big and start running a Lightning node. You can make it a very public node or a very private node. It's up to you, and you can manage your own transactions. And there's thousands upon thousands of nodes running all over the world, just like there's thousands upon thousands of mining uh, operations running all over the world. There is nothing about lightning that is centralized. And one entity holding a lot of money is not centralization. It's wealth being held by an entity who somehow has attracted it to themselves. Right? That's not centralization. And the fact that if you are on the Lightning Network running a node, and let's say that you are providing liquidity to a counterparty so that they can move transactions, you can close that channel at any time and sweep that wealth back into your side of things, and you can take it back off chain anytime you want to. So it's not centralized. Fractional reserve. This is where, like, it's not. So I think that you could make the case that centralization on Lightning, saying that, compared to, the United States Federal Reserve centralizing monetary control and creation. That's a sheep to a dog. Saying that lightning is federal, is, uh, is, is a uh, fractional reserve system. That's like comparing a dog to a fungus. They're both alive and that's it. They both occupy planet Earth. I was listening to a, a, a talk show one time and it was like a couple arguing about shit and like, The, the host said something like, what is your relation to each other now? I think it was Dr. Phil. And the man said, we are two people that occupy planet Earth at the same time, and that is it. That's the relationship of fractional reserve to lightning. Fractional reserve is the ability to create more of a thing, in this case, dollars. It could be euros. could be Great British Pounds. It is the lending of a thing, and the act of lending actually inflates the supply. There is no expansion in the supply by putting liquidity on lightning. It is just the locking up of sats or Bitcoin, and it moves around, and it enables other value to move across the network. So it, without lending that creates the issuance of new currency, you don't have fractional reserve. And lightning doesn't do that, and there's no way to do that with Bitcoin because you don't create more Bitcoin with Bitcoin. There's no way to do that. You have a fixed Non-negotiable, 21 million cap forever and a day. Next up, um, will we ever have 100% private Bitcoin transactions? And this is what keeps me from saying any use of any other crypto is just stupid and the person doing it should be beaten with a bamboo stick while they are hung upside down from a tree. Like your toxic maximalist or some form of that. Uh, it's one of the things anyway. You know, there are other technologies. The fact that they're crypto is not really what might interest me in them. Um, the fact that they're technologies, maybe they can do a thing. Most of them, I think, will never do the thing. I think 
a technology and a crypto are not the same thing in most instances. I am a privacy advocate, and there is complexity into doing things privately with Bitcoin. And right now, you can be very private with Bitcoin. And it takes, I'll give you an example of one thing it takes understanding to stay at least mostly private without somebody specifically saying, I want some, but if you have somebody at the top, like a mob boss in the IRS going, I want to know everything about Jack Spirko's crypto operations, and they unleash hell on one person, there's very little you can do about it. And I'll tell you, even with a lot of privacy currencies like a Monero or a pirate chain, it's still the case to a degree because did you protect your device? But with Bitcoin, here's an example of where people will get confused and realize that they could be divulging privacy uh, or, or, or losing privacy without realizing it. We have a thing in, in Bitcoin called UTXOs, and I'm going to keep it really simple today. So just think of it this way. I go to Coinbase, and I buy $100 worth of Bitcoin, and I send it to a wallet, and I send it to an address. Coinbase has a record of that. Let's say that one way or another through chain analytics or through government requests or somewhere, I become associated with that address outside of the world that is Coinbase. Because Coinbase knows if they go look at it. There's no way to get out of that. But let's say it becomes known. Jack Spirico has this XYZ address. Okay. And then I do a business, I do a business deal with uh, Barking Turtle here in the chat. And Barking Turtle, who's giving us a great Warren Buffett quote, says, Jack, I want to be an MSB member. And I say, it's 50 bucks, because it is. And Barking Turtle sends me $50 of Bitcoin to the same wallet, but a different address. Now it's on a different UTXO. Okay? And that address is not associated with me. Maybe it's associated with Barking Turtle. Maybe it's not. It depends on how he got it and what has gone into finding out what Barking Turtle has. Right? Okay? So you'd say, well, that $50 is, no one knows it's you, Jack, unless Barking Turtle tells somebody. And the $100 from Coinbase, somebody knows it's you. Now, Liberty Meat Solutions starts sending boxes of his amazing jerky out, and I'm like, hey, Liberty Meat Solutions, I remember your jerky. It reminds me of my dear jerky when I was a kid, and I want some. And he says, how much? I said, I want $150 worth of it. He says, cool, with that much, I'll ship for free, $150 charge. Now, let's just keep this simple. I had one wallet that that entire $150 was in. And Bitcoin hasn't moved, and it's still $150. And I say, send $150 to Liberty Meat Solutions address. Now, do they know it's him? I don't know. I don't know. It depends on how he's managed that address and how he's managed his privacy. That's not the relevant thing here. What just happened? When my wallet sent that, since basically you had a hundred on one UTXO and a fifty on another UTXO, when they got sent and combined in a single transaction, a chain analysis would say, oh, since A belonged to Jack Spirico, B likely did too, and now anything else connected to it can be inferred to have at least something to do with me. When you understand that, you understand how complicated privacy on Bitcoin really is. And people would say, just use Monero or just use R. Well, if you're not using VPNs and a bunch of other shit, again, if they target you, and that's one of the things we need to understand about this whole privacy issue. But I think there's a belief in the Bitcoin world that all the exchanges like basically send their daily transaction records to the government and chain analysis companies. I, I don't think that's the case. I really don't. It's not that I don't think they would. I don't think that it's in their benefit to right now anyway, and it, could be in the future, who knows? And that's another reason to keep certain things private. But 
I think there's a lot more anonym, 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 there's not more anonymous nature to Bitcoin right now than a lot of people think there is until you're zeroed in on for a specific reason. Long term, I think we'll get more and more solutions of privacy because the privacy issue is not a Bitcoin problem. It's a surveillance state problem. And all the surveillance state authority that has been gained since specifically since 9-11, it really started to ramp up after uh, Oklahoma City bombing. And what was it? 96, I think, 95 or 96. But then 9-11 came in and then tons of it. And it's been added on to since the original Patriot Act. They'll never give back that power. They'll never get rid of the data center in Utah. They'll build another one. They'll never stop spying on you. They'll never stop having cell phone agencies collect data on you. They'll never get rid of the unholy alliance between companies like Amazon and Google and Facebook and their report. They will never give this back to us. But technology will restore privacy. Digital privacy. Technology like my Start 9 box over here. Well, and we're not there yet, but again, we're in a one place that I don't believe the state can win an arms race is technology. People who are really good at development by nature tend to have an anarcho bent to them, even if they're not anarchists. And the fact that a person who's really good at code in development can compete with somebody sitting you know, in a, in a government seat where they're paid $200,000 a year or $300,000 a year of your money and actually can win that. And then you multiply that across the world and you go into an open source model. And this is the problem the state has. The state will never sanction and endorse developing their shit in an open source model. And people like us, we actually want development in an open source model. Because an open source development doesn't mean that I can figure out how to get around you. It actually makes it harder. To, like If the government really was smart, they would be doing development with open source for things like this because more people, more eyeballs can find more flaws. So I think that will get applied more and more to Bitcoin. And this is one of those things. This is how I see this. Way, way back in the day, before you knew who Jack Spierko was, even if you are a TSP original gangster, You've been here since 08 when I started, way before even that. I used to have a blog, um, a technology blog called Comtech News, and I theorized about how the music industry would change. And I said, this is how I see the music industry changing, and basically the artists would have their music listed in a catalog, and nobody would buy music anymore. They would, they would pay a subscription fee, and artists would be compensated based on how often the subscriber listened to their music, And that there would even be monetization where things would work like, you know, if I really like, like, like 70s classic rock, I like Kansas, like a modern band that's like, yeah, we kind of sound like Kansas. They might actually pay a fee so that I would show, they would show up in my feed and then I would hear them and decide if I like them or not. And you have basically, and I said it would all be browser based. And this is the, the analogy here. Well, when I was saying this, there was no such thing as an app. There was no such thing as a smartphone. People listened to music on iPods and Zooms and, like, creative MP3 players. That's how long ago this was. And I talk about how it would completely destroy the record companies unless they got on board, like Sony, BMG, et cetera, 
or they'd have to go into other forms of entertainment, right? This is, this is on the Internet Archive. You could probably find it if you look for it hard enough. And the only thing I got wrong was the means of delivery. Because I said it would be a browser-based system. Like GrooveShark, by the way, I'm just saying, which finally got put down for being an unlicensed way that music was distributed. But it would be browser-based. Tell me it's not Spotify. Tell me that's not Spotify. Tell me that's not Pandora. And as far as, like, discovering new musicians, if you use Pandora, check this shit out. Build your station and then check. There's, like, curated mode. There's deep cuts. And there's fan favorites and shit like that. Other people that listen to your music, these are some of their favorite songs. And it changes the new music coming in so that you can build channels that are better and more suited and have more depth in them and things like that. It's the same thing. This is how I see privacy in Bitcoin. We will develop technologies over time that more and more obfuscate our holdings to make it to the point where you might think you know, but you can't be sure, and you damn sure can't prove it in court that I really own this or you really own that. Here's the one upside that they have, though, that I don't know how this will ever be solved. If they can prove that I ever held this specific Bitcoin on this specific address and it's not there anymore, they can say, well, if you sold it, Mr. Spirko, you owe us money now. So you need to prove to us that you still have it, so you need to disclose this location. That's the one I don't know exactly how we'll solve that. That's actually the hardest one. If they know what you had and it's not there anymore. That's the most concerning one, because you get into tax issues then. However, there is, at least in the United States, for now, a perceived right to privacy. So we'll see how that goes. That's all I got for you guys today. Hope you enjoyed it. Let's go ahead and hit a few of your feedbacks here. Um, Fortress K9 says, Jack, can't wait to get to your place, packing the night and heading to you starting tomorrow. Can't wait to see you too, Joel. We've been looking forward to it. Uh, Joel at Fortress K9, you guys should really check him out. He does protection dogs and obedience dogs. And he also does straight up, you can just get puppies from him. And he's a really great dude. And I've got to hang out with him. I think I got to hang out with Joel more this year than I've hung out with him since I met him 10 years ago. So he's coming in on a barter deal. And uh, you really should uh, come check him out. Built by Ross says, I made t- about 10K. I think he's trying to say flipping Doge. I don't recall you ever saying to buy it. No, I never said to buy it. I don't tell people to trade. I don't give people trading advice. I did do it in a closed somewhat telegram group. Um, only my people and with an understanding of, and this was right when the Wall Street, uh, whatever the hell it's called, uh, idiots. Like it was right after they got done pumping GameStop and it was known that they were going to pump Doge. And I was very conservative with it. I think I was buying at like four cents and dumping it at 10. And I did it like three times over a few days. And I took like a thousand bucks and I turned it into like six or seven. And then I bought Bitcoin with it, moved it off exchange. And I said, I'm done. And people in that group did say, they're going to keep doing this and it's going to go to 30. I was like, I don't, I know. I don't play that shit. Like this was so early into it. It was obviously it was going to happen. And the thousand bucks was, it was not my money in a way yet. It was like the house's money. So I do, uh, I do do referrals to different exchanges and things like that. And I get paid in Bitcoin. So this was like my monthly clean out of my referral income. And I'm like, yeah. We'll see. And, you know, I had stop losses on it, too. So, like, if it went down a certain point, the most I was going to lose was, like, 500 bucks. So 
I, I don't teach that and I, and I honestly don't do it anymore. I used to do it quite a bit and I kind of did it in that one instance to show off. So where I flipped out on that guy, if that, if he was in on that, if he saw that, then, then I guess that could have been misconstrued. But if he says I said it on MeWe, he's out of his freaking mind. I never told anybody to buy freaking Doge. Uh, Mike says I'm clear on his end. He's talking about my camera, so we'll skip that. Thanks, Mike. Uh, as the crow flies homestead, how does the ledger continue once all mining is completed? This is a common question, and it was actually on my list of questions, but I'll add it here. The short answer to it is fees. So you're talking about everybody in this broadcast is dead before we get to no more Bitcoin to mine. That's the first thing to understand. Like, not a problem we need to fix. I think it's like 2150 or 2155. I'm not sure on that. But I'm going to say that the majority of us who are parents and grandparents, our kids are dead, or at least they're in an old folks' home, unless they've invented some sort of life-extending technology. Almost everybody on the planet is dead before we are out of Bitcoin to mine. But what what happens when the price of Bitcoin is $10 million? Which, going that far out, I don't even think that's, I think that's conservative. What is the fee value of validating transactions? And you're going to have a much more stable monetary network at that point, and maybe you won't have, like, every single person developing energy using surplus energy to mine Bitcoin, but why wouldn't you? In fact, don't you get to a point after a long enough period of time when you develop enough of these energy projects that it doesn't matter if you make less if the energy is cheap or free? As long as you're, you're – in fact, what if you're losing money? I want you to think about this. You're an energy provider. This year, you're going to lose $10 million worth of energy. Okay. You're going to lose $10 million worth of energy. Now, you're not going to lose it on paper, as in you're not going to lose $10 million. You're going to have transmission loss, surplus energy generation. You're going to have $10 million worth of energy you can't sell. So you understand where I'm coming from. You have $10 million of energy that there is no buyer for. If you take that energy and you use it to mine Bitcoin, and you generate $5 million in fees, the person that's an unsophisticated person with money would go, you just lost $5 million. No, you just made $5 million you would have never had. It, even if you were going to lose $10 million in capital, and you use it to mine Bitcoin, and you end up losing $5 million, would you rather lose $10 million or $5 million? So I, I think this is a non-concern due to time horizon. But if you, if you, if Bitcoin's around in a hundred years, okay, then everything we're forecasting has happened or it wouldn't still be here. The price of Bitcoin's through the roof and the value of validating transactions would probably exceed mining value today. And the efficiency of doing it will be improved because technology efficiency improves over time. It's almost like the guy that designed it knew what he was doing when he designed it, the way he designed it. Reputation, Hunter says, reputation seems an awful lot like social credit scoring. I thought that was bad. Social credit scores run by the state, bad. Merchant reputations are not social credit scores. Merchant reputations are when I go buy something on eBay, 
And I'm like, that seems like a really good deal. I'm not sure it's a good deal. And the dude has like 5,800 transactions and only like three people that bitched. That's a merchant reputation. And this can be done with smart contracts where it doesn't even have to be you did a review. I had a transaction that I sold you something. You bought it and you didn't bitch. Bing! Successful transaction. Certain amount of time goes by where you didn't bitch. Maybe there's a mechanism to say, hey, I'm not happy with this. And I get a chance to say how I've resolved it, just like the moderation system on eBay works. And it goes, bing, Jack's writer. Boom, Jack's a jerk. And over time, I develop a reputation score. Hey, that's not a social credit score. A social credit score is you're not allowed to ride this bus. You have to ride the lower class bus because you have too low a social credit score. You can't live in these houses. We're talking about, as a seller, having a reputation with your market. And I think those things go hand in hand with your market you already know. There's a lot of you guys that if all of a sudden BBB, you know, Better Business Bureau said Jack Spirico's a jerk and he's a slanderer and he's a thief and he steals money and you'd be like, yeah, I'm going to keep doing business with Jack because I've been doing business with Jack for 14 years and I don't know what your problem is. So I think reputation scores are more about attracting new buyers who don't already know your existing reputation in the market. And I think they would be useful. And I think we will develop them in a way that will make sense. And K-Bong says they never give back what they take. So true. He's talking about power. And that's the truth, guys. That's that's the truth. We will never get back what they have taken from us in their ability to surveil us, their legalization of their own illegal behavior. They will never give it back voluntarily. The, the only way it ever comes back is that we decide... Bullshit, we're doing it anyway, and here's how we're going to do it, and I dare you to stop us, right? Or you have full-on, in some instances in history, revolutions, though typical violent revolutions, you know, warring sides, don't work out well. They seldom work. Like the American Revolution is truly an anomaly in full revolutions. Most revolutions end in the installation of the dictatorship. Go check that shit out and read about it. Um, so revolutions that are more about behavioral revolutions, becoming ungovernable, traditionally work a lot better to wrest power away from authority. So it either takes that or it takes the conditions become untenable. The government knows I can't continue this way because we're going to lose power. So I would say a lot of the restrictions on the COVIDs in the United States weren't because the government's like, gee, guys, we were wrong and we should put things back because we're nice guys. And we didn't really do this to take away power and exert control. They went, shit, the whole place is going to erupt into a firestorm of shit and we're going to hang from light poles and we probably shouldn't do this anymore. And there's still some of them dumb enough to try, right? And there's some places still in the world where they're still locking people down in shit. But even Australia, as bad as that got, like they eventually said, you know what, we're going to stop this locking down and these quarantine center concentration camps and shit. Do you think they did that because they decided that it didn't work? They decided that it couldn't work going forward. So they don't ever give anything back unless it's some either life and conditions on the ground or the people they took it from take it back. That's the only way it happens. And that's why I think that the whole privacy discussion is much bigger than Bitcoin. And you know what? Maybe we should get Matt from Start9 on Bitcoin Breakout. And maybe that is a guy that we should bring one of his episodes over. Remember, guys, I still want to hear from you. If you think of an episode of TSP that you think I should change the bumper on 
and bring over into the Bitcoin breakout feed from the past to build that feed up, let me know. I just thought of that one. I got two good ones with him. And uh, also, if you are not yet subscribed to the Bitcoin Breakout YouTube channel, you may want to do that soon because I don't know if it's going to be next week, but very soon. The streaming on the TSP channel will only be the non-Bitcoin Breakout shows. Thanks a lot. And for those of you uh, that listen to the Bitcoin Breakout as a standalone show and you don't really check out the Survival Podcast, I just want to let you know about something that you might be interested in checking out, the survivalpodcast.com. Subscribe to the entire podcast tomorrow because who we're gonna, what we're going to talk about tomorrow I think would be interesting to a lot of people that see themselves as just Bitcoiners. I've always noticed that the path to Bitcoin leads toward things like self-sufficiency. That's why I'm doing this. I've I've noticed that people who don't just learn about Bitcoin and buy Bitcoin and stack sats, the ones that investigate game theory, the ones that investigate monetary theory and monetary policy, and actually fully explore the problems in our modern world created by fiat money, tend to start thinking about things like living off grid or partially off grid and getting solar energy and you know taking their excess solar energy and mining Bitcoin with it like Brian Harrington does, right or they start homesteading or gardening and they start learning more about liberty. They come in maybe even very uh, very much a statist on the right side of politics or the left side of politics. It doesn't really matter. And they move more and more toward libertarian philosophy, live and let live, understanding that freedom is the thing that builds abundance in the world. Tomorrow I have a guy. This does not have to do with Bitcoin, so it will not be on the Bitcoin breakout. It will be just on TSP. But his name is Tauti Meyer. He is a former financial executive who was fired for not taking the jab and not mandating it to his employees in his firm. He moved off grid to a 400 square foot small house. He has no grid ties. He produces all his own water and power and a ton of food. He's building a YouTube channel. He's just getting started with that. We're going to talk about fighting back against the system that enslaves us. And I just think that's That's what Bitcoin in the end tends to be. So if you want to know more about that, just go to tspc.co. You can learn all about the Survival Podcast there. And I will catch you guys tomorrow with another episode. This has been another episode of The Bitcoin Breakout. To subscribe and learn more, please visit thebitcoinbreakout.com.